If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 2. Let's pray before we read God's words. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your words. I thank you for how precious your word is. What a privilege to hold your word, your revelation in our hands. I thank you that every word comes through your hand. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of the Lord's anointed, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Psalm 2 is both very realistic and it's wonderfully hopeful. It's really interesting, I hope you got that as I read it, how it's put together. There's four sections with four different speakers, four different voices. In verse one to three, that fo the focus is on the raging world. You see that, the raging world. And you can hear, can you hear the voice of the world? The jeering, rebellious kings speaking to one another in verse 3, the raging world. And then in verses 4 to 6, we hear God the Father. The spotlight is on the Heavenly Father. He laughs in derision at their puny rebellion. And then he speaks and you hear his voice in verse 6. Then you have verses 7 to 9, the third section, and this is the voice of God's own Son, the Lord's anointed, God's appointed King in Zion. But then in verse 10 to 12, we switch back. And I think it's the psalmist sounding awfully like a preacher, summoning those rebellious kings and those rulers and those nations to submit themselves while yet there is time to the Lordship of God's Son. So those four different sections, almost four different voices. The first is the raging world. The psalmist begins with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's almost as if he's been reading Twitter for a week, isn't it? Can you think of anything more futile than attempting to rebel against God? It is absurd, but that's what the psalmist is saying. And it's vital to understand that as we begin, because the psalmist doesn't start with the nightmare of human evil, plotting and scheming in its malice. 
that is a terrifying prospect to snuff out the flickering candle of hope. No, the psalmist doesn't start from below, not from the mess of the broken sinful world. He starts from above. With the one who presides over it all in unflinching sovereignty, and he anchors his hope there. And as he begins to consider the rage of the nations, knowing that God reigns, he sees the thing as patently ridiculous. He is already quite amazed by it. Why do the nations raise? rage? Can you think of anything more futile? But what we need to see is that the perspective that enabled the psalmist to face our twisted world with, real, with realism and yet not lose hope is how we should view the world. And it, because he knows who's in control. So he can face reality without flinching and not be overwhelmed by it. Let us be sure that we keep that perspective firmly in mind as we consider how the psalmist describes the nations now. Look at, look at how he describes them. He says in verse 1, they're raging and plotting. They're almost you know, conspiring together. The kings, in verse 2, set themselves. They think they're ever so clever. They counsel together against the Lord and his anointed and said, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us say how things are. Let us, the rulers of the world, we're so angry with God, we're so angry the way, with the way God thinks has made things, so let us rule. Whatever we say is okay. Really? But it's the human heart laid bare in its ugliness and sin and malice for everyone to say. Do you think man can really say that what God said is not? Do you think man can really change what God has done? And the word used for the Lord's anointed is the word Messiah. So they're talking about the Lord and his Messiah. In the words of Luke 19, we will not have this man to rule over us. Everywhere you look, man is saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. And it is so familiar today. I don't know whether you read last month, I think it was at the end of November, about the conservative Lutheran bishop from Finland. Remember that? Have you read that? Joanna Pajola. I hope I got that right. And he's facing criminal charges. He's, on, he, he, he's, he's facing criminal charges for hate speech. And what was his terrible crime? What is he up in court for? He published a booklet saying what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. He published a booklet and now he's on trial. The local police interpreted Finland's legislation that would make even publishing the Bible a hate crime. Because if you publish what the Bible says, it's a hate crime. So if you publish the Bible, it will become a hate crime. That's not the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, or China under Mayo. That is a supposedly modern Western liberal democracy. What is that? It's the raging of the nations. It's Psalm 2. The nations are mad. 
It's the conspiracy of the rulers of the earth taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointing. Interestingly, when the raging of the nations erupted in the first real persecution that the church endured in Acts 4, the people went to Psalm 2 as they saw what they were facing. Luke says they lifted their voices to God and they prayed Psalm 2. Acts 4, verse 25. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together. And so on. And then it goes on to say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate. And so on. So they read the sufferings of Jesus under Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews as fulfilment of Psalm 2. And they saw clearly in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the nations and the rulers of the earth were seeking to throw off the yoke of the Lord and his Messiah. And they saw in their own persecutions, facing sufferings for Jesus' sake, another iteration of the same old opposition of the kings of the earth who want to overthrow God's claims on your lives. I'd say, my dear friend, trust God's word. It is good. It is the best way to live. It is the only way to live. Psalm 2 provided the interpretation for their suffering. Psalm 2 provided the interpretation for what they were going through. I hope you can see that. It's such an important lesson. If you want to cling to hope among chaotic, difficult days, allow the scriptures to give you the interpretation through which you make sense of things. And not your own feelings or experience or suffering or your fear or your insecurity. Let the Bible tell you. Let God explain the world as he rules over it. Don't let the media rule the world. I can't think of a worse group of people to tell us how, how things really are. Don't ever believe what you read in the papers, by the way. Don't. Because they allow what God says in his words to provide the interpretation of what you're going through. And that's what the church in Acts 4 did. They quoted Psalm 2. They brought the scriptures to bear on their experience. Instead of collapsing into defair, despair or running away, instead of watering down their message to avoid giving offence, instead of even praying for God to deliver them, they resolved to stand firm and keep preaching. And that's a great encouragement to me, to stand firm. To stand firm. In verse 29 of Acts 4, they said, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place with which they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were told to stop preaching Christ under pain of suffering. But Psalm 2 gave them a backbone and with the help of the Holy Spirit they stood firm. The second psalm, don't you see, it helps us to face this raging world with reality. Yes, we're honest about how things are, 
but Psalm 2 gives us the resources to stand firm and to face it head on. And secondly, the laughing God, verses 4 through 6. This is God's response to the raging of the world. The raging world is confronted by a laughing God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is it that allowed the psalmist to face the dark, ugly world so unflinchingly? What is it that helped the church in Acts 4 face persecution with boldness? What will help you and I help face tomorrow's trials head on? It is seen that the Lord reigns. It is seen the reign of the Lord who hears every skulking whisper that the raging nations utter as they conspire against him. And he finds it tantamount to a joke. Dale Ralph Davis said, God is unimpressed. <coughs> if you've imbibed a Western sentimental view of God as the great soupy softy in the sky, then you won't understand this picture of verse 4. In fact, you'll be offended by it. You see the picture of God in verse 4? If in your view the only attribute of God is that he is nice, you have a hard time comprehending the hope and the comfort that verse 4 gives. But if you've come to know for yourself the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you turn in dismay from the dark conspiracies of the kings of the earth and you hear the laughter of the one who presides over all things, you won't take offence, you'll take tremendous assurance from it. God is so secure in his governance of his creatures that the mere suggestion of their rebellion coming close to unseating his dominion, coming close to ruining what he has done, is comedy of the highest calibre. God does more than laugh if you look at verse 6. He's appointed his king to rule. What is it we're celebrating this time of year? We celebrate the birth of Christ, the one who came to obey, to bleed and to die for sinners, to secure our pardon. We must never lose sight of the gospel. But sometimes we can only focus on our personal salvation and lose sight of the truth that the first advent of Christ was God's answer to the raging world. Advent is about the laughing God who appointed his king in delight to reign over all things, knowing that no matter what a rebel world does in opposition to Jesus Christ, of the increase of his government and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you believe that? I believe that. That whatever the world does, however terrible we think it is, of the increase of his government and of his kingdom, there will be no end. The raging world, the laughing God and the reigning sun. Verses 7 to 9, the third voice that we hear, the reigning sun. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The speaker reflects on the divine decree of the Father and in verse 7, a statement of identity. Who is the speaker? You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. Hebrews 1 verse 5 applies this directly to Christ. The begetting. Today I have forgotten you is an eternal beginning. And the today is the everlasting today of the divine life. So this son has always been the son of the father. There never was when he was not. John 1.18 uses the same language. The same language we find in Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1 to speak of Jesus as the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. This son, whom God has appointed to be king, is none other than the second person of the Trinity. And the New Testament insists on this, so much so that these words from Psalm 2 are alluded again and again in connection with Jesus' identity and mission. Mark 3, Matthew 3, 17, Mark 1, 11, Luke 3, 22. When Jesus was baptised at the beginning of his public ministry, well, what did the Father say? You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The same language in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 20, and Peter, 2 Peter 1. To speak about the transfiguration. The Father bearing public testimony to the deity, to the identity of his beloved Son. Jesus is the Lord's anointed and is unlike any other king who has ever lived. We saw that yesterday, didn't we? The king. The king who was a king before he was a baby. Every other king started off as a baby. But he was the king who became a baby. None of the, descents, none of the descendants from David's line were like this man, who is no mere man but the God-man, the Divine Son. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be both God and man, in two distinct natures and one person forever. And when Jesus was born, the kings of the earth missed it. King Herod didn't understand what was going on. He thought that Jesus was a was a direct rival to his throne. So he ordered the mur murder of all the infant boys to snuff out what he thought was a threat to his power. He didn't realise that this king is unlike the world's kings. But for all their machinations, the world's kings don't possess sovereignty, do they? But the king that God has appointed, God's appointed only begotten son, is divine and is able to perfectly accomplish the Father's plan. Notice not only his identity, but the scope of his reign. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. There is no place, there is no people group, there is no tribe, there is no language where his dominion will not one day be absolute. Those same nations that were raging and plotting in verse 1 will be the possession, not of those petty 
envious kings of verse 1, but of the Lord's anointed. The ends of the earth belong to him. Are you weary this morning? Are you beleaguered? Are you tired of all the nonsense? Remember what Advent is really about. And I was so encouraged in just studying this this morning. It's about lifting up your head and looking past those strutting, preening fools who set themselves up as trendsetters and culture shapers, influencers. It's about looking beyond the arrogant attempts of governments, of social engineering or moral revolution. It's about seeing through the power of social media to shape opinion and steer society. And it's remembering that the true king has come. So lift up your eyes, lift up your heads. Jesus has come. There is no place anywhere beyond his rule. And no one, no one will ever escape his dominion. So lift up your heads, brothers and sisters, and rejoice. Because Jesus has come. And Jesus reigns, and he will reign forever. So the identity of the reigning son, the scope of his reign, and don't miss the power with which he shall reign, in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's interesting where this comes from, by the way, because there was a tradition among the ancient pharaohs of Egypt at their coronations to have the names of their enemies written on a potter's vessel. And then the pharaoh would literally break those pots into pieces. And once broken into a thousand shards, there's no possibility of those pots being put back together again. And it's a picture that against the Lord's king, there will be, there can be no resistance. The king's rod is mightier than the clay pots. Against the iron rod of the rule of King Jesus, the clay pots of our rebellious lives do not stand a chance. The kings of the earth think themselves so mighty, but the truth is that the righteous wrath of Jesus Christ is an iron rod and our rebellious lives are old clay pots. There is no resisting the just judgment of God's appointed king. If we're honest, that image, that verse, kind of grates against that, probably how we're feeling after Christmas dinner or our Advent sensibilities. We have the romance of the nativity scene. We even like the cattle with their big brown eyes welling up with tears of wonder. The shepherds are there at the nativity, the wise men, and I'm sure we could fit Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer in somewhere. And he some managed to sneak in somewhere. But some of you have learned, maybe by personal painful experience, that what we need most of all is not that sentimental image of Christmas. We need a king who will bring justice. That's what we need. And we know in our hearts that we need Jesus who will execute judgment, justice on the whole world. A justice that can be ignored by no one. We need that today, don't we, in our world? Justice. And the king has come and he reigns. 
and his power is unsurpassed. And fourthly and finally, that the psalm ending with this pleading word. What should we do in light that Jesus has come? Look at verses 10 to 12. The psalmist began talking about the nation's rage and the king's and the ruler's conspiracy against King Jesus. And now he returns to these same people, these rulers and kings, and he pleads with them. He pleads with them. He would plead with us. How should we prepare for 2022? Psalm 2 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, the rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The psalmist is telling us about the absolute sovereignty of Jesus, the great King. All those who reject him will perish in the way. But it does not have to be like that for any one of us. If we will but serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son. What is that an image of? Of submission, love and honour and fealty and trust. The book of Psalms opens in Psalm 1 with two ways to live. We looked at two kings yesterday. Two kings. There is the way of the wicked that leads to destruction and the way of the righteous that takes you to the blessed eternal life. And here at the end of Psalm 2 we have the key. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Jesus came in his first advent to provide a refuge for sinners like you and me. And he obeyed and bled and died and rose that every provision, every provision might be made for anyone, anywhere who wants the pardon of God, who wants to be reconciled to the Father. You don't need to perish. No one needs to crumble like an old clay pot under the iron rod judgment of Jesus. There is an offer available of the blessed life. He died. He died the cursed death under the judgment of God so that the way might be opened up for guilty sinners like you and I to have eternal life. <clears throat> the blessed Son died a cursed death that wicked sinners, and that is what we are. Wicked sinners might enter the blessed life. So come and take refuge in Jesus. He came to provide refuge. Take refuge in him. Kiss the sun. Turn from sin and rebellion while there is still time. Because one day there is a second advent. When he comes to judge the living and the dead. And Revelation 19 pictures that moment and quotes Psalm 2. So today... While it is today, do not harden your hearts. Turn and live, kiss the sun, come and hide in Jesus. There couldn't be a better message than that, could there? There's not a better message than that. He's pleading with you to kiss the sun and take refuge in him. May that be your portion this Christmas time.
that you would kiss the Son and turn and live. For his glory. Amen.